Hello everybody, I'm Viktor Kovalenko from the United States and this is my podcast Ukraine Decoded. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine. With me today is David Stulik from the Czech Republic. He's a senior analyst at the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague. Before that, he worked in Ukraine for 12 years as a press and information officer at the Embassy of the European Union in the capital Kyiv. David, it's nice to talk to you again after so many years and welcome to my podcast. Okay, my pleasure. My warm-up question is, of course, about your memories from diplomatic service. How did you like it? It was a constant progress of the Ukrainian uh, society, a constant drive to be a modern country with a modern economy. So there was a very strong social force and energy there. And this was something that was very much motivating, not only me, but also other colleagues. And this kind of unstoppable drive to be modern, free European country was uh, very, very much inspiring. So I actually very much enjoyed it to be there. You worked and lived in Ukraine during the first Russian invasion in 2014. And so how the Russians began their attacks? Why didn't Europe help Ukraine at that time? Well, you know, uh, me and my colleagues from the EU delegation, which is a sort of a EU embassy to, to Kiev, we had uh, written a kind of a forecast analysis sometime in the middle of uh, January when there were first victims on uh, Maidan, that uh, these kind of deaths and these kind of casualties will only increase the uh, desire of Ukrainian people to overthrow Yanukovych's regime. And then we perfectly understood that that was something that Russia wouldn't uh, like. And we were kind of trying to think a few steps ahead, how Russia could still prevent Ukraine from getting closer to the EU. And uh, one of my colleagues wrote that actually Russia will use this momentum, and if Maidan wins, to try to get back what they believe uh, is theirs, Crimea. That Russia would attack, uh, would take, would occupy, annex Crimea, that there might be some sort of a referendum. And this kind of analysis was sent to Brussels. And instead of being kind of uh, uh, encouraged to do more kind of thinking like that, we were told that the task of diplomats is to kind of report on facts and not to be involved in uh, think tanks uh, kind of activities. So I think that there was a kind of understanding among uh, Western diplomats that Russia would not allow Ukraine to develop on its own way. And then it was clear that Russia would use all possible means to keep Ukraine tight to Russia. So for us, it was not a big surprise. We were rather surprised by a very weak uh, reaction of uh, Western leaders. And I personally was involved in some sort of talks where the Western leaders were telling then acting president of uh, Ukraine, uh, I mean, the Speaker of the Parliament, Mr. Trutinov, to be rather uh, cautious, not to use force against Russian occupiers of Crimea, and there were calls on Ukraine to avoid any bloodshed. And there was a general belief that Russians would be kind of content with her just having Crimea and that they would stop. I don't like this kind of a phrase to say, I was right, I was telling these sorts of things, but we were pretty sure that Russia would not stop there, especially if they see the weak reaction of the West. It will be just a kind of an incentive to move even forward. 
unfortunately, the process, this kind of a development again this year on the 24th of February. Uh, but Russia is uh, wrongly reading the Western reactions. They don't perfectly understand what we mean by these calls for reservation, for refraining uh, to use the force. They see it as a sign of a weakness. This is simply a different pattern of a political culture of Western societies, Western leaders, because uh, there is a conviction that you should solve the conflicts in a compromised way, in any kind of a discussion through the discussions, through the negotiations. So that the outcome should be a peaceful compromise or a peaceful deal, right? But so that was, uh, I would say, misread by Russians, and they thought that this is a rather a sign that the West is weak, and it led to increased appetites of, of Putin and his regime, unfortunately. Lately, we hear more and more voices in the Western countries that call for negotiations between Ukraine and Russia to stop this war that is going on for nine months since February. What do people in Europe think about it? Uh, you know, I just returned from the Netherlands and I was also in Germany recently. And I feel there a change of the moods, especially in Germany. Uh, more and more experts, politicians, journalists and average citizens are more and more convinced that they can't trust Putin. And I heard it uh, from the official representatives of Germany to say that the peace terms should be defined only by Ukraine and that uh, Ukraine should uh, go for the full victory, uh, which means uh, in, in that German understanding, three things. Restoration of borders from 1991, second international investigation and punishment of war crimes committed by Russian Federation, and third, the payment of uh, war reparations for the damages caused uh, in Ukraine. And I don't think that uh, somebody would be strongly now pushing Ukraine to sit down to the at the negotiation table and to try to find some sort of a peace deal with Russia. And again, there is a general conviction that Ukrainians should not kind of sacrifice their lands, because this would be kind of a legitimization of the violation of international law. And this is, again, something that, you know, Russians don't understand so well, that Western societies very much value the rule of law. And now it's so obvious that it is Russia who is who has been violating the international law for such a long time. And this is a kind of a red line for Western democracies to sit down to the same table, for example, with Mr. Putin. It is not a secret that many European countries welcome the war refugees from Ukraine, including your Czech Republic, and help them a lot. In one of the latest weekends, I saw a massive march of support for Ukraine in Prague, and you were speaking at that march. What did you say to your fellow Czech citizens? I told them that we should not be afraid of that winter that is coming, because there are widespread fears among Czech citizens that it will be extremely difficult winter. And it is true that quite many people, households, would have problems to pay their energy bills. But this is just a matter of surviving three, four months. But at the stake, on the other hand, are our basic values, our freedom, our independence. So we can't compromise on these values and we can't be so, so scared enough to adjust our behavior to these fears that are being instigated on us by Russian narratives. That crowd that was there in Prague, up to 35, maybe 40,000 of people, those were the people who are perfectly aware that we can't make any compromises, that we will have to give up some part of our comfort, that yes, it will be quite costly to go through this winter, but also at the same time, 
there was a general understanding that Ukrainians are in a much worse situation, that they will have a much worse uh, winter to go through with maybe no electricity, running water, with no heat in their houses, in their cities. Ukrainians very much count on us. And if we manage to go through that winter, this would be the best support for Ukraine. But I also mentioned another thing, which is not so popular to say it here, that even the, we call them urban liberals and intellectuals, uh, who are very much supporting Ukraine, that they are actually turning themselves into useful idiots of Putin. Why? Because they are quite aggressive towards their compatriots who have that fear, towards those people who demonstrate against the government and demand lower energy prices, and they demand to limit the assistance to Ukraine and to keep that assistance or that aid for the Czech citizens. Yes, there are up to, I would say, 20-25% of the Czech people who are very much afraid and who are ready to make these compromises, for example, with Russia. There are sometimes calls for direct talks with Putin with regard to gas deliveries. The problem is, if you start to attack these people who are really desperate, who are frustrated, you will be pushing them away from you and you will be pushing them into the arms of the what I call the false prophets, people who have links to Russia, who are disseminating Russian narratives who have a pro-Russian stance, the so-called fifth column. And we can't allow to have that gray mass of maybe 15, 20 percent of people of our society to move into the hands of these people. This will be a risky because that's a part of a Putin strategy to divide and rule. If we have, let's say, internal clashes here, and there are some forecasts, like the dark scenarios, that we might have some street protests turning into violent, using violence, then uh, we as a society would be quite weakened. We will be occupied with our internal problems, with internal cleavages, and that would limit our possibilities to help Ukraine. Again, this will be our internal fight, internal domestic fight and cleavages in European countries, which, again, are much of less, let's say, dramatism than the situation in Ukraine. David, what is your opinion about the sanctions that were imposed on Russia by the European Union? Why didn't we see the desirable effect of the sanctions? Yes, there is, a, I would say, a general surprise and uh, amusement that these sanctions haven't brought any significant change in the Russia's, so let's say, policies. The reason is that the Russians as a society are so indoctrinized and, I would say, zombied that they believe that it is necessary for them to suffer through because of these sanctions. This is actually the kind of a behavior that I would very much ha- like to have in Europe. So Russians as citizens, as society, are quite resilient towards these sanctions. For them, it's another, let's say, evidence that the West is hostile, that the West, uh, the NATO, Western countries want to destroy Russia, want to break them down, and they are ready to kind of go through that sacrifice. But sanctions are hitting the Russian economy and, for example, also Russian military industry. Russians are now not able to produce these modern precise missiles, for example, because they don't have these semiconductors. They have a huge problems to replenish their stocks of their, let's say, weapons. So in that regard, the sanctions are hurting Russia and hurting especially the military capacities. But again, at the societal level, at the level of people, unfortunately, the sanctions are not having so far such a huge impact. 
I think that the bigger impact on the Russian people would be the growing numbers of casualties among especially those who were recently mobilized. That might trigger some sort of, let's say, protest, discontent in Russian society, but probably not the sanctions. In November, a prime minister of Czech Republic, Pyotr Fiala, visited Kyiv and met President Zelensky. And it was exactly on the day when Russia launched its next missile attack on Ukraine with 55 missiles. Fiala and Zelensky signed a declaration that Czech Republic supports Ukraine's membership in NATO defensive alliance. What is your opinion about the future security architecture in Eastern Europe after the war? Uh, you know, I will turn it around. Uh, for the Central European nations like Poland and the Czech Republic, the future security geopolitical architecture is unthinkable without Ukraine. Without Ukraine, we can't defend at least Central Europe against the hostile countries like Russia from the East. So Ukraine must be part of the at least the Central European defense structures. Would it be part of the NATO? Uh, it's very difficult to say. Would it bring us to some sort of a new uh, security architecture? Again, we will have to see. But for our, let's say, military planners, Ukraine is one of the, let's say, key stones for our future security. That's why our country, our government is so much keen to have Ukraine inside of both NATO and the EU, because that would uh, only increase the sphere or the space uh, of security. And this is also a task for us, Central Europeans, to convince our Western counterparts about the need to have Ukraine there. But again, here is another very important issue. So it's not a one-way street or one-way communication. Also, Ukraine has to do quite a lot of homework. And uh, the Dutch are very rightly saying that the accession process, especially to the EU, must be merit-based. So Ukraine must demonstrate through the implementation of effective reforms its desire to be one of the, let's say, members of the European family or be one of the members of the NATO. But again, Ukrainian army is now becoming one of the strongest forces on the European continent. Actually, it is us, our soldiers, our officers, our military planners, who can learn more from Ukraine than we can teach Ukraine. Yes, we can supply Ukraine with weapons, but it is Ukrainian army that has this direct, unfortunately, this direct experience and knowledge about the military strategies of Russia. So in that way, we can learn quite a lot from Ukraine. And uh, also maybe on the sidelines, we are now drafting, uh, me and some of my colleagues also from Poland are drafting a joint recommendations paper where we are saying that both the Czechs and Poles should take part in training Ukrainian army. There is a new EU training mission for the army plan, so we have to definitely be part of it. This is a kind of a general belief, at least here in the Czech Republic, that uh, Ukraine is also fighting for our security and for our freedom. Uh, it might sound pathetic, but it is the way how the people see it here. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why there is a, such a widespread support for Ukraine. This Russian war triggered a wave of attacks on Ukrainian refugees in Europe, for example, in Germany. And in your Czech Republic, two internet bloggers were arrested and sentenced to prison terms this month for inciting hatred against Ukrainians. Is this an orchestrated campaign we should worry about, or are those just isolated incidents? Absolutely. I wouldn't overestimate the importance uh, and appearances of these people and 
these attacks. Yes, they are taking place, but as I said, uh, up to 20% of people uh, are suffering from the current situation, and they, some of them are blaming Ukrainian citizens who come to our countries for all these kind of uh, negative developments. And indeed, there might be also quite a few useful idiots, people who might act on behalf and in the interest of the Russian Federation, but these are still isolated, very, very isolated cases, putting on fire the refugees' houses. Overwhelmingly, uh, the public opinion is very supportive of Ukraine. And it goes also for Germany. Uh, when I was now in the Netherlands, I was shown the public opinion surveys showing that 70% of the Dutch want to increase the assistance to Ukraine, to Ukrainians, uh, want to increase the sanctions against Russia. And here in the Czech Republic, we have quite similar figures. So unfortunately, as in every society, you have different opinions. But uh, indeed, the the ones who might be attacking Ukrainian citizens, they are in a very small and isolated minority. Talking about refugees, Bulgaria decided to host Ukrainians indefinitely, so they will not have to come back during the winter. As far as I know, Cyprus and Ireland also decided to host Ukrainian refugees indefinitely. Your European Values Center in Prague is also helping Ukrainians to find refuge in the Czech Republic. I have a very mixed feelings about that, because on the one hand, I would love to see that all these people could safely return back home. And the longer they are living outside, there will be more and more of them who would like to settle down here. For our countries, for our economies, uh, this is a kind of a very much welcomed uh, phenomenon. But for Ukraine, it would be a kind of a loss of uh, brains, labor force. It, so it would weaken Ukraine. So I would like to see as many people returning to Ukraine and bringing back with them, you know, new skills, new experience, so that they would be then also willing to, you know, have similar kind of a, a lifestyle or standards and uh, values in Ukraine as well. But on the other hand, I perfectly understand that it's not safe uh, in Ukraine. And now, unfortunately, I'm being contacted by some more colleagues and friends from Ukraine who are still living there, especially from Kiev, who are already asking about the possibilities to move out. So I wouldn't exclude that because of these you know, terrorist attacks on Ukrainian cities, uh, more people will have to leave, at least for this winter. But again, uh, I think that uh, they will be welcomed with open arms, with solidarity, with empathy, because we all here see what's happening there, how brutally these attacks are having an impact on their lives. Also, the Czech Republic extended uh, by one more year uh, the legal stay of uh, Ukrainian citizens on our territory. And this is uh, based on a uniform EU kind of a decision. So this goes also for the other EU member states. You always have some positive things in negative things, in negative developments. One of the positive things is that uh, before the full-fledged aggression of Russia on 24th of February, uh, there were quite many voices warning against the influx of Ukrainian labor force into the EU. That was one of the reasons why the EU wasn't, for example, ready to discuss the free movement of people with Ukraine. Right now, we have up to six, maybe seven million of Ukrainians living in the EU, and it doesn't have any impact on the labor market. Contrary, here in the Czech Republic, even the unemployment rate decreased. So these people, and most of these people who have come here, they immediately were looking for the jobs. Even the people with high education, they were taking kind of low-paid manual jobs because they just wanted to work. And this is another reason which the public opinion has changed the impressions and minds about Ukraine. 
Right now, we have discovered Ukrainians as they are. Before, you know, there were many stereotypes, prejudices in both ways. So right now, also thanks to the these people who are here, we see that the European societies do see that they don't pose or represent any threat or a kind of a risk for the labor market, rather contrary. So I think this would, at uh, the end, uh, would positively have an impact on the possible EU-Ukraine's negotiations on the accession to the single market, that Ukraine could be then offered all four freedoms uh, without any negative consequences. On this note, I'm ending this episode of my podcast Ukraine Decoded. My guest was David Stulik from Czech Republic. He's a senior analyst at the European Values Center for Security Policy. Thank you, David, for telling us what's going on in Europe. Thank you, Victor, very much, and Slava Ukraini. And also for your information, uh, I joined the army. I'm now on the reserve. I'm a reservist, and I'll, the whole last week <laughs> we were training in the forests. Uh, and again, you know what is surprising is that there are now queues in the recruitment centers, and quite a lot of people are now joining the reservist army. Dear listeners, you can support this podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me/mrkovalenko. You can also find a direct link for donations in the description of this episode. Goodbye for now and so long.